What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. It was, you know, almost 5 a.m. in the morning and dead quiet when four successive, extremely loud building shaking uh, explosions happened. And these were uh, cruise missiles that were striking the Kremitorsk airfield and taking out uh, some of the, the, the logistics and communications there, as well as the runway. And, uh, you know, it, it, shook the, it shook the building and rattled the windows. Um, there was this huge, you know, many flashes of light and then uh everything um was uh, a bit chaotic after that and uh several journalists ran down to the bomb shelter there were people talking in the bomb shelter about whether or not russian troops would come rolling through the streets down the street in tanks toward us there were planes flying overhead and we could see them and we could hear them when we stepped outside you know we weren't sure whether or not they were ukrainian or russian and whether or not those would fall on the hotel. It was a really terrifying moment. And like I said, there was this great uncertainty, which I think in many ways was, was more terrifying than you know, seeing, seeing troops on the street, because at least then you knew what was happening, where they were coming from, and you had a sense of where you could go. everyone, this is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books Podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Today, I am extremely excited to have on the show Christopher Miller, uh, talking about his new book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Christopher Miller is a writer and journalist based in Kiev, Ukraine, in Brooklyn, New York. Since 2022, he has been lead correspondent in Ukraine for the Financial Times. His writing and journalism has been published in The Atlantic, CNN, Vice News, and The Times. His coverage of Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 was a Missouri Honor Medal winner for Distinguished Service in Journalism. Chris, how you doing today? Doing all right. How about yourself? I'm great. You know, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. Uh, we were yeah. just talking before we started recording. You're in Kiev right now uh, oh, yeah. in, uh, in Ukraine. What's what are things like in Kiev at the moment? Um, I would say tense at this particular moment. Just moments before we began chatting, the Ukrainian Defense Ministry announced that it would start. It, it would from midnight tonight consider any Russian ship, or sorry, any ship going to Russian ports in the Black Sea or to occupied port cities in Ukraine uh, as carrying military cargo, and it would treat them essentially as parties to 
the war on Russia's side. This was this was a, a decision that uh, was made uh, and sort of mirrors uh, the Russian move that was uh, announced just a couple of days ago. So it's a bit tense at the moment. Uh, it does feel like there's a little bit of an escalation happening, and you know, it's this has largely been an air and and, and land battle, but yeah. now. Uh, maybe things are moving a little bit uh, out to sea. I heard that, and um, I didn't know about the the Ukrainian response, but I had heard on the news about um, Russia's threat to to sink any ships coming into port. And I'm also one that's that's I mean that's a real escalation, but very strange timing. I'm I'm reading right now the book Dead Wake by Eric Larson, which is about the sinking of the Lusitania. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, like, oh, no, <laughs> like the 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 chances of of escalation seem enormous. And especially since like history has seen situations like this happen. I'm curious what your what's your take on that? What are your thoughts on on where that could lead to? Well, I think, like I said, there's there's been a lot of fight. I mean, the, the fight has been mostly, I mean, contained to the battlefield. The only air war really happening is Russia's missile and drone attacks. The Ukrainians have attacked using naval drones, which has been uh, you know, a, more of a, a recent development. Uh, last year, they used some of their own developed missiles here in Ukraine called Neptunes to sink the Moskva cruiser uh, that you might remember, which is the Russian's flagship um, battleship in, in the Black Sea. This obviously stems from Russia backing out of this really important grain deal that allows grain to be exported from Ukraine despite the war. And uh, Turkey had brokered that deal and would obviously like to keep that in place. And so would Ukraine, but Russia backed out of it, then announced that it would treat ships as parties to uh, the war, of course. So we're seeing this escalation at sea at the same time that Ukraine is, you know, conducting its counteroffensive. So this could be a way for Russia also to, to distract from what's happening on the battlefield. But I feel like this is an escalation that we're seeing the war spill out in, in, into other various sort of like spheres that haven't really been the focus of it thus far. And I'm I'm curious in, you know, not to like draw too many like Lusitania connections, but <laughs> I mean, are there ships, are there a lot of foreign ships coming in and out of Ukrainian ports? And are those like if an American ship sailed into a Ukrainian port, what realistically, what are the chances that Russia would sink that ship or any NATO country um, sending a ship into a Ukrainian port? Well, I think, I mean, mostly the ships that are that are coming into ports are merchant ships, you know, with various uh, flag carrying states, you know, I think the risk of them being attacked now has risen significantly. You know, not, not, I haven't heard of any, you know, there have been no reports of any ships being attacked up to this point, but this now probably will keep, you know, ships uh, away from both Ukrainian ports and occupied, Russian occupied Ukrainian ports potentially um, uh, Russian ports in the Black Sea as well. And all of this could have a pretty significant impact on the markets and on uh, Russia's economy. Um, Certainly Ukraine's economy is already struggling because of the war and the 
two, two of its key ports in the cities of Mariupol and Berdyansk being occupied by the Russians and uh, them, uh, the Ukrainians uh, being unable to use them. You know, I, I uh, right right now, I'm, you know, it's these are these are threats, right? We haven't seen any any movement in the Black Sea on the part of the Ukrainian Navy or the Russian Navy to to signal that it's prepared to fire on ships. But let's see how things develop in the next uh, hours or, or or days and and after midnight when um, this uh, deadline from Kiev comes into place, and then you have both sides saying we're prepared to take measures if we need to. Well, thank you for that uh, that perspective. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Hopefully, uh, I mean, you know, this is just like such a this this the the conflict itself is just you know every day it seems like more more wild and out of control than the last. Well, I was just going to say that. I mean, this is just another day in this war. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, everything that we didn't expect has. You know, many many of these things have 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 happened, and uh, uh, you know, this was just another one that uh, we we didn't foresee. Another thing that we didn't foresee that that's that's happening now. Uh, what's next? I don't know. Um, but yeah, you know, every day every day here, it's uh, it feels like something feels like something new. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into your book. So this so your book is is really fascinating to me because it is a a very it's a personal on the ground uh, account of uh the the russia ukraine war and a lot of the books that i've read about the war and a lot of the guests that all of the guests actually except for you now who've come on the show the their perspective is a little bit different and they're great books and they're great perspectives for us to have but it's not that up close in in personal account um like like you've got right here so you've been on the front lines in the war. Um, you've been reporting. You're in Kiev right now. Since since the war started, how much how long have you been in Ukraine? Well, that's exactly right. What you said. I mean, and and the point of the book was really to provide a ground level view of the last 13 years, which is how long I've been here, and in that time, the major events that have shaped Ukraine and and modern Ukraine. Um, because they have, I think, many of them uh, have been packed into the past decade, right? The revolution yeah. in 2013 and 14, Russia's annexation of Crimea, the war in the Donbass in 2014, and now this full-scale war. So yeah, the and book that is important to 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 note. Which, frankly, until I started reading books like yours about Ukraine, you know, I think most people think that 2022 is when things started, but really since 2014. You know, Russia invaded in 2014. Right, right. So that's an important, an important distinction. Yeah, exactly. So this this book it spans you know my 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 time here. Uh, it begins when I arrive, you know, shortly after I arrive in spring of 2010, and it ends early this year. And it actually, be, without giving uh, away any spoilers, it begins and it ends in the same place, uh, which is the city of Bakhmut. And 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 some of your listeners and, and you yourself might you know recall that Bakhmut was the longest and bloodiest battle of this uh, of this war, um, and you know tens. I'm of glad thousands. you gave that spoiler too because I was gonna I was I'm totally gonna ask you about all about <laughs> Bakhmut. So. Spoiler. I'm not giving away too much. I think you know just the location <laughs> sure. and saying it begins and ends here doesn't sure. uh, doesn't give away too many details. But you know Bakhmut was this tiny uh, eastern Ukrainian city. 
uh, of about 70 to 80,000 people when I arrived in 2010. It was actually called Artyomovsk then, which is the name that the Soviets gave to it. Bakhmut is its historic name. It's, it's a place that was founded actually in 1571. So it's one of the oldest yeah. places, uh, oldest cities in eastern Ukraine. And it actually for a while I, was the regional capital before Donetsk was. I didn't realize. I think 2016 is when they changed their, yeah. their name back to Bakhmut. Yeah, yeah. It was during this period of decommunization, uh, really when it began in earnest here, that the Ukrainians began changing a lot of the city names and road names to uh, the names of Ukrainian heroes or significant cultural figures, or in some cases back to their historical name. So Bakhmut was founded as Bakhmut, you know, hundreds of years ago, and and then it was named uh, Artyomovsk by the Soviets, as I explained in my book, uh, for Comrade Artyom, who was a close friend of Stalin's and a Bolshevik hero. And so there are towns, cities, and villages all over uh, Russia and Ukraine called Artyomovsk or Artyomovsky or some variation of that with the name Artyom in them. And just, just around uh, eastern Ukraine, I think there's probably a dozen of these little villages with various uh, variations of that name. So when I arrived, it was Artyomovsk. I first came there as a Peace Corps volunteer. I had actually been a journalist in Portland, Oregon for um, some years and then graduated university there. And the financial crisis hit or the Great Recession. And I grew bored with my low-level cub reporter job and was ready to, to take, a, take a step up. Uh, but there wasn't a lot available. So I, I decided to, to uh, you know, do something else for, for a while. And had You this were on the indie music scene in Portland, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, what else. What else are you going to do in nice. you know, these these other you know weird things like naked bike rides and um, you know indie, covering indie music concerts? So uh, I'd I'd grown a little bit tired of that. Was ready to do something a little bit more serious, reporting wise, and didn't have a lot of options. So I I joined the Peace Corps, which um, was something that I had had in the back of my mind as something to potentially do because I had um, a, an uncle who I'm close with who had done the Peace Corps. Uh, in the 90s. And, and we had been pen pals when he was in Ecuador. And from that point on, I always thought, you know, this, this could be something that, uh, that I could do down the line. And it seemed like the right time. And so I, I went into a recruitment office in Portland and said, you know, I would love to do this. They said, where would you like to go? I said, Africa. And they said, great. There's a very good chance we'll send you there. And then some time went by. My application was accepted. They said, we're actually going to send you to Ukraine. How does that sound? And I said, yeah, sure. I just want to get lost for a while. I knew nothing about the place. I ended up in eastern Ukraine in the city of Artyomovsk, uh, just a couple of hours from uh, the Russian border, and had a really great, uh, albeit sometimes challenging time. And, and at the end of the, uh, of the two years that I spent there as a Peace Corps volunteer, I decided to instead of coming back home to the U.S., to, to stick around Ukraine, move to Kiev, get into uh, doing foreign correspondent work. And I've stuck around. And it's been, well, 13 and a half years almost. And yeah. uh, I've tried to leave, I think, three times now. But Ukraine has this weird way of pulling you back, back. and not allowing you to, to leave. And you know, I had spent actually quite a, a lot of time 20, in 2021 back in New York, where my wife and I now 
uh, have made a home and 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 uh, didn't have any plans to come back to Ukraine uh, long term. And then, as the Russians began building up their forces around the borders of Ukraine in in, in uh, autumn of 2021, I was keeping a close tabs on things. I came back that December and have been here uh, with a few breaks in between since covering uh, covering the uh, full scale invasion. Yeah. Well, let's actually let's start off where you start off in your book, um, which is the night of the the Russian invasion. Uh, full-scale invasion uh, of Ukraine in February of 2022, because I thought you gave a very descriptive account. Just you know, tell us, you know, what what were, what did you see on that night? What did you experience? How did you feel? Uh, give us give us your account. I was working with BuzzFeed News at the time, and I had a photographer with me named Pete Keyhart and a second reporter uh, named Isabel, and. Uh, a driver named Anatoly, and we had this, you know, great foursome that, you know, we we were we were, dr- you know, driving all around the country, gathering reporting uh, in the lead up to the full scale invasion, and trying to to get as 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 much of a detailed picture as we as we could about what was happening, and, you know, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, made this speech. That was planned, and we knew about it in advance, so we knew when to tune in. And uh, it was on, I think, the first, there there were two. One came just a few days or a couple of days before the full-scale invasion, and he said, the quote-unquote Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, these eastern Ukrainian regions that are occupied by Russia and were governed by uh, the Kremlin's puppets for, for years since they... Uh, invaded back in 2014, they were asking for Russia's help because they were being threatened by the Ukrainians, which was not true, of course. And they asked for the Russian military to be sent in. And I knew at that point that we were going to see some kind of military action. You don't put tens of thousands of soldiers around the border of a country and then go out and perform um, this charade on Russian television as the president of the country without without being prepared, I think, to take some kind of action. So with that in mind, I uh, took my team and headed out to eastern Ukraine to the city of Krematorsk, which is just about 40 minutes from Bakhmut, uh, which I mentioned earlier. And the reason I did that was because there was there there was this hotel that I had 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 spent a lot of time in and um, used as a, as a as a base in covering events in 2014 and 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 after that, and I knew that we could be based there. We could move around easily, and whatever happened, we would be in a good position uh, to cover it when it when it did. And I thought that the Russians, you know, there there were these Western intelligence warnings of you know a possible attack on Kiev, and I will admit that I I was I was I was very skeptical of that. I was convinced at that point that the Russians would invade. I, I just didn't know that it would be on the scale that we would would soon find out it would be. Yeah, and I think nobody did. You know, I, no right. no author writing about Russia that I've had on the show has been like, yeah, I knew it was going to happen. You know, and everybody was. Too. You know, a part of you a yeah. part of you doesn't want to believe that anyone is that insane to right. to do that. So you know, I thought, well, 
you know, regardless of what happens, something is going to happen in eastern Ukraine. So we need to be there because Vladimir Putin had specifically said, you know, we are going to come to the defense of of um, you know our uh, essentially their puppets in, in in eastern Ukraine. So we head out to Kramatorsk. Then there is this second speech that he gives early in the morning on on February twenty fourth, around four a.m. or so. And you know, listening to that, I knew I knew that there was going to be an invasion. I think everybody who watched that knew, and and that it was really just moments moments away. And with that in mind, I quickly threw everything into my into my bags that I had with me, and made sure that I had um, my my documents uh, on my person. Um, I actually uh, I had enough time to take a shower. I thought um, this could be my last time for a while to have a hot shower, and um, I don't know for that, that, that for some reason that that just made sense to me. Like I, I might have a few minutes. I should I should do this because the next days are go- could could very well be crazy, and who knows where I'm going to end up. So I did that, and I got dressed. I lied on my bed, I had a conversation with some friends, and uh, then after you know Putin finishes his, his speech, it was you know almost 5 a.m. in the morning and dead quiet when four successive, extremely loud, building-shaking uh, explosions happened. And these were uh, cruise missiles that were striking the Kremitorsk airfield and taking out uh, some of the, the, the logistics and communications there, as well as the runway. And, uh, you know, it, it, shook the, it shook the building and rattled the windows. Um, there was this huge, you know, many flashes of light and then uh everything um was uh, a bit chaotic after that and uh several journalists ran down to the bomb shelter you know we we were putting on our helmets and and, and vests and obviously you know swiping through twitter and social media to see what was going on and I felt at that time that I, you know, I, I had made the right decision. I knew that there was something happening in Eastern Ukraine and that we would be in a good position to cover it. I was a little bit concerned that it was about it being so close. <laughs> and, you know, I think there was also a great feeling of uncertainty. There were people talking in the bomb shelter about whether or not Russian troops would come rolling through the streets, down the street in tanks toward us. There were planes flying overhead and we could see them and we could hear them when we stepped outside. You know, we weren't sure whether or not they were Ukrainian or Russian and whether or not those would fall on the hotel. It was a really terrifying moment. And like I said, there was this great uncertainty, which I think in many ways was was more terrifying than, you know, seeing seeing troops on the street, because at least then you knew what was happening, where they were coming from, and you had a sense of where you could go. But this uncertainty really it can have it can have a pretty great psychological effect on you you're you're almost it almost it almost freezes you you're not quite sure where you will be safe and where you can go so a lot of us um stayed in the uh, bomb shelter of this hotel for a while coming up to uh street level to take a look outside and engage engage things uh, by late morning I had decided that it would be a good time to head to Kiev because I was seeing reports of Russian troops streaming across the border. And we were seeing these tanks and armored vehicles and security camera footage 
uh, coming across uh, in, in northern Chernigiv region uh, from Chernobyl, um, heading south toward Kiev. And I thought if, uh, and as I say in the book, you know, if, if, if the idea of Russia's idea and goal is to take Kiev, I don't know if it's a good idea or not, but we should be there to cover it. This is a major, major development. So we got in the car and, you know, drove as fast as we could from eastern Ukraine to Kiev, which was typically about a nine and a half hour drive. And I think it took us maybe 14 or so because the lines of the gas stations were, you know, one or two kilometers long. There was traffic. Was that a lot was of the general mood among people um, where, where people, you know, like we mentioned, Russia has been... Um, you know, they invaded in 2014. And so maybe this was on the back, the, the back of, of a lot of people's minds. Um, but were people generally in a pretty chaotic state where they, you know, describe kind of the mood, you know, as, as everybody's trying to flee this violence? I think there was, there was a lot of disbelief. People in Eastern Ukraine and in Kiev as well, didn't think that Russia would invade on this scale people in Eastern Ukraine had sort of become inured to it all. I mean, they were, they were, they were used to the war being so close to them because they had lived for nine years with it just outside their door. Right. Uh, Krematorsk, there was a bit of a buffer between the front line and, and the city itself, but it had been under Russian occupation for nearly three months back in 2013, uh, sorry, 2014. So residents in, in, in Krematorsk and some of the nearby uh, cities knew all too well what living under Russian occupation meant and the kind of terrors and horrors that it came with. But they didn't think that, you know, they would be at risk because there was that space between the front line there, I think. But everything happened so quickly and, and with such intensity, of course, that you know, really jolted everyone into action. So people got on the road immediately either to get gas in their tanks so they could be ready to leave or to immediately flee and start heading west where everybody believed they would be safer, either west in the Carpathian Mountains, a very sparsely populated you know, area of, of, of the country that would not likely be targeted, uh, or even beyond that to the Polish border, the Slovakia border, the Hungarian border, you know, trying to get to, the, to, to safety in the EU where they knew you know, bombs wouldn't be falling on their heads. So there were a lot of people on the streets. The ATMs uh, had lines that were 20, 30 people long. Pharmacies were packed, everybody trying to get medicine. Uh, shops uh, were full of people gathering water and you know, non-perishable food items to stock up on. There was you know, panic and... Uh, a lot of, like I said, a lot of uncertainty. It was a, a really terrifying moment where people did not know whether or not, you know, the country would stand another day. Uh, when, when Russian troops were seen moving toward Kiev, a lot of people thought, because they didn't believe that that would actually happen at first, but they began thinking that these Western intelligence assessments that we had seen and heard about that were saying there could be an attempt on Kiev, they were thinking, okay, well, now this is true. And if it's true, you know, some analysts were saying Kiev would fall within, you know, if not, you know, several days, then a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And, you know, they, they were 
they, they, they were they were really worried that that was a possibility. And we didn't know that the Ukrainian resistance yet would be as stiff as it was and that the Ukrainians would react in the you know truly incredible way that they did. Um, you know, these were the early hours and yeah. it was a really terrifying moment. So when you get to Kiev then, what the first week, what is that like in Kiev? It was a lot of that. It was a lot of that same feeling. That first night. Are when you I got seeing? Back, are there a lot of? I mean, are there are there tanks? Are there planes? Are there helicopters? Um, like, what's what are the signs that war is 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 here? There there were certainly Ukrainian armored vehicles uh, on the streets. A lot of checkpoints had been set up around. Well, first of all, on all of the main highways, arteries throughout the country, soldiers volunteers you know from like the territorial defense forces or local police were manning checkpoints and checking ids um you know looking in the trunks of cars um scrutinizing our passports to make sure we were who we said we uh, we were when we entered kiev uh that first late evening uh i remember we had to get out of the car and you know they they looked around and they looked at us and um, you know, asked us what we were doing, and and then we made it to our hotel. And from from there, I think I took uh, like sort of a walk around the block, and I noticed that a lot of people were sandbagging their windows, doors. There were a lot of police on the streets, not a lot of pedestrians. Um, civilians really were hunkering down uh, or on the road, still heading heading west. I spent the night with my team and several other foreigners and, and, and journalists at a hotel in central Kiev in its uh, parking garage, which doubled as a bomb shelter. It was two, two, floors, two stories under, underground. So we were certainly safe there, but it was all concrete. It was you know, pretty cold because this was February. They were setting up cots and had little sandwiches and hot coffee for, for folks. I, I, they brought down pillows and blankets. Um, they really didn't want us going up to our rooms, and my room was on the fourth or fifth or sixth floor, because at that height it was easy for missiles to to reach uh, and to explode. And the, you know the risk was 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 uh, much greater than being uh, at ground level or, or or underground. But you know there there were there were planes in the air. We could hear explosions in the distance. There were you know these these were explosions that we were hearing. Out in the Bucha Irpin Hostomil area, northwest of Kiev, where the Russians were trying to break through these defensive lines that the Ukrainians were able to set up very quickly. But the interesting thing, I think, was that it wasn't the military that responded immediately because Ukraine's military and its National Guard were. were sent to the east and the south of the country because they believed that the Russians would either come up from Crimea like they did or push further east, sorry, from the east, further west like they did. But they didn't have any defenses set up around Kiev. And so the people who responded were people from the territorial defense, which is a volunteer group. You know, these were guys with hunting rifles, you know, who who uh, maybe they had done a stint in the military back in the day or they had participated in 2014 and, you know, were, were out of shape, you know, just ordinary, ordinary people uh, and, and police. And, um, you know, these people were largely responsible for, for stopping um, or at least slowing at that point 
the Russian advance until the military had um, time to to respond. And uh, I remember waking up after that that night. Well, I didn't I didn't sleep much to be honest. I I was in, and I write about this. I you know I slept in my uh, in my vehicle that night, and uh, really just tossing and turning. It was a very uncomfortable uncomfortable night, and and you know constantly scrolling through Twitter and um, messages and, and calling as many of my sources as I can to get, you know, whatever information I could about what was happening above ground. But that next morning, you know, there were a lot of air raid, air raid sirens, a lot of alert, missile alerts, and uh, it just, the city, uh, this this city of, of like more than a, 3 million people that was always just so vibrant and um, busy, like humming with life, was completely dead, with the exception of, you know, the sort of reverberations of explosions in the distance, people with guns running from here to there. The Ukrainians had opened up the doors to their armories, handed out rifles to anyone that showed them a passport. You know, it was a real ad hoc response and 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 totally surreal. I bet, yeah. Well, now this isn't, so this isn't the first, I mean, you, you've been covering the, the conflict in the Donbass for a while. So you, you certainly have seen violence before this and you talking about kind of your, you know, you were, you're texting friends and getting messages from family. What does your family think uh, at this point? Because, you know, you've been a war reporter for a while. What's, what is, what's your family saying to you? Well, well, first about the war reporter thing. I, d- I don't like calling myself a war reporter because I actually came here. I mean, not 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 because I was interested in covering a war. I was. I just happened to be here uh, when the war began. Hence, the title. The war came to us. I mean, like my friends here and Ukrainians and you know everybody else. Uh, you know, this this all the Russians came to Ukraine. You know, to wage war. I stuck around because. I love the place. I I ended up writing a lot about its politics, its culture, its people. You know, the war was something that I learned to cover, and and I learned how to be uh, a war reporter, just like I learned to cover the revolution. You know, I didn't. It's not like I I didn't come here with a gas mask or a helmet or a Kevlar vest or anything like that. But you know that all of that sort of prepared me for this full-scale war. And so when it happened, I knew how to conduct myself. Um, I, I knew how to behave. I, I knew what I needed. You know, I had a, a great team who also was um, uh, experienced. Uh, they've, they've worked with me in the past in covering the war out in eastern Ukraine. We had everything we, need, we, we needed. Uh, you know, we remained calm and talked over all of our decisions. We had a great security team supporting us from London and New York. So friends and family aren't like, you got you to get out now, Chris. My parents and friends were worried. Yeah. You know, they, they knew that I would make good decisions. But of course, you know, what they're seeing on CNN or NBC or they're reading in the articles that I'm filing or what I'm writing on Twitter was, you know, that... Russian tanks were rolling into town and missiles were falling and exploding all over the country. And that we really did not know what would happen 
not only the next day, but even in the next hour. And, you know, there was a lot of death very quickly. You know, a lot of, a lot of Ukrainian soldiers, a lot of civilians were killed in, 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 in missile strikes, artillery strikes as Russian forces uh, pushed through and tried to get to, um, you know, the cities that they were looking to capture, Kharkiv, Kiev being two yeah. of them. Well, let's actually, let's, let's talk about maybe your, your first six months of the war. Now, I'm curious how you would characterize that time and if you just share some of the experiences um, that you were seeing on the ground. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you look at the war in phases, I, I think the, the first couple of months or so, or, or maybe the first month would be sort of phase one, when Russia's focus was to get to Kiev and to take the capital to impose its own, um, you know, to, 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 um, to put its own puppet government in place, um, you know, to either capture or kill President Volodymyr Zelensky, to um, essentially control the country. And it became clear only a couple of weeks later that they were going to have extreme difficulty in doing this. You know, the Ukrainians had managed to stop them. Uh, it was still a difficult fight at that point. You know, I, I think some of the things that stand out are probably, I, I, I touched on it briefly, but but the resistance, the, the civilian resistance, not only the military, but really Kiev was saved by, you know, tens of thousands of ordinary people who volunteered, took up arms, made Molotov cocktails, erected barricades, uh, set up checkpoints and block posts. And, and that's how they slowed down and, and ultimately stopped uh, the Russians. And then it was the military and the National Guard that responded and, and, and repelled them. How close uh, were the, the Russians to Kiev? Was that? How close were the Russians to Kiev? Uh, I mean, if you look at Irpin and Bucha, what is that? It's, I mean, by car, it's, you know, 15 minutes um, to the western outskirts of Kiev. Uh, on the eastern side, um, because Kiev is bisected by the uh, Dnipro River, uh, they got as close as Brovary, which, yeah, it would be, you know, 15, 20 minutes to the city limits of Kiev. So what's that? You know, fifteen kilometers uh, or less? I uh, know maybe maybe a little bit more, roughly. Uh, I mean, the the force uh, or the full force of Russia's military was a little bit further out, but they had some units that were uh, relatively close. So if you were talking like, let's use like a New York City comparison, sure. minus the travel um, times, but like maybe like Newark, uh, what's say like. Uh, uh, no, maybe even closer. I mean, I think you know maybe Red Hook to Williamsburg. Very close. Yeah, close, close. Yeah. But in, you know, in a city, and, and this is a city, and these were suburbs of the city, you know, it's, it's a very densely populated place. So if you are unimpeded, you can get from point A to point B very quickly. But there's buildings, there's roads, you know, a lot of things standing in your way. You know, it's, it's densely populated. And so, you know, in practice, it, it, it would take, a lot. There would be a lot of resistance. You know, the partisan mentality in Ukrainians meant that the Russians were going to have to fight for every meter that they, you know, tried to take 
or would 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 attempt to take toward toward Kiev at that moment. So you would you would credit then the the repelling the Russians. Uh, I I think a lot of people. I think there is a a and this is probably part of it. There is an idea that the Russians really they blundered through like the for the beginning part of the war that they made a lot of mistakes. That's true. But you would you would say in this situation it was more the resistance put up against the Russians. Yeah, both can be true at the same time. The Russians were were incredibly stupid about how they acted and what they did. I mean, they were using maps that were made in the 1980s to navigate their way to Kiev. Um, you know, they were coming in these long snaking columns that exposed, you know, dozens and dozens of their armored vehicles to um, partisan attacks and anti-tank weaponry that the Ukrainians were using, including the American javelin systems, which, which proved very effective in the early weeks. No, they made mistake after mistake after mistake. But at the same time, there was really strong resistance on the Ukrainian side. But it's the combination of those two things that kept the Russians out of Kiev. Also, there were Russian special forces on the ground already in central Kiev. So as I write in my book in the latter part about, about this period of time, there were agents paid by uh, and, and coordinated by the FSB, the GRU, Russian Special Services, to work as saboteurs and agents on the ground that were providing uh, and pass that were, that were providing information on what was happening in central Kiev and particularly in the government quarter to these agencies and uh, the military outside of of the capital um, to aid them in trying to get them here, but also with arms themselves, trying to storm the presidential administration, parliament, uh, key government buildings, you know, to, to destabilize the situation. And, you know, they did have this kill list, which included uh, President Zelensky and several of his cabinet members, and they were trying to get in. And, you know, if, if we talk about them, they were also very close to not... I mean, well, well, to to seeing Russian uh, agents and troops uh, storm through their gates. The presidential administration, you know, it's 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 um, it's not like it's not like the White House where it, it's guarded with heavy security and there are all of these you know fences and layers of of security that keep people away. It's it's you know the streets in front of it are open. And it's 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 right in the middle of, of of the city here. I was looking over my shoulder because I could I could sort of almost see it just over the the hill uh, behind me. But uh, they, you know, the, the the leadership here in Kiev was asleep when the invasion started, and they had to rush to get to the president's office uh, or, or or wherever they needed to be, and. The security at, at the administration was saved because they uh, essentially used a bunch of their own vehicles to barricade the entrances on, on either side of it. Uh, and there were shootouts uh, in the street um, between uh, Ukrainian security forces and these Russian agents. And you know this, this is all information that was told to me from the security services here by the Zelensky's chief of staff, Andrei Yermak. You know, and so it was 
again, this um, unorganized response that saved them, not defenses that were in place because they expected this to happen. What I'm curious, like if you're thinking like day one of the invasion to this, maybe like the six month mark, if you were talking on the street to like your average Ukrainian, how have their attitudes changed? Early on, there, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of fear. They didn't know if the capital would stand, if their country would be around. You know, after a few weeks, when we saw that the Russians had failed in taking the capital, and not only that, but they had been pushed, pushed out and were forced to retreat back to Russia, there was great pride here. And morale was very high. And the Ukrainians believed then that they were capable of, of winning this war. And I think that carried into summer when they managed to, with great difficulty and significant loss of life, stop Russia from continuing its offensive action in eastern Ukraine, although we did see the loss of cities like Lysychansk and Severodonetsk in, in, in the east there. But, you know, the Russian offensive really stopped that, that summer. They weren't able to do much more. And so morale remained really high. It, it was so through autumn, especially during this blitz on um, Kharkiv region, where we saw the Ukrainians in uh, their first counteroffensive take back a significant amount of, of territory uh, in, in dramatic, surprising fashion. Uh, and then also the city of Kherson in the south. Morale waned some in the winter. I mean, winter is a really difficult period of time here. It's cold, it's dry, your skin cracks, you know, it hurts to go outside. Uh, and, and neither army made a lot of progress on the battlefield. And that's really when the Battle of Bakhmut became this just grueling war of attrition that was, you know, seeing thousands of casualties, uh, you know, uh, a week even. And then I think, you know, Russia trying its hand at another counteroffensive and failing in January and February uh, again gave the Ukrainians a little bit of a boost. And that's when Kiev and also Western um, allies, including the United States, began talking about sending uh, a significant amount of more weaponry and ammunition to Ukraine. And we first started hearing about the potential delivery of tanks and other various weapon systems uh, for Ukraine's upcoming spring counteroffensive. So Ukrainians really were you know, pumped up and excited about, about spring. But that kind of Drugged out, dragged out for not weeks, but excuse me, for months. And in that time, the Russians were able to dig in to the, the, the territories that they occupied in the south and the east and build these extremely complex and dense networks of fortifications that have you know anti-tank ditches and trenches and miles deep minefields. And we're seeing miles now, deep, miles deep, miles deep, three to 10 miles of, you know, scattered mines, trenches, barbed wire. It's, it's, it's awful stuff. And, and, uh, you know, without knowing exactly how much of a challenge those would pose, 
people here were were pretty pumped about the counteroffensive because expectations for it were very high. So we're at this moment now where the counteroffensive is not going according to plan. The Ukrainians have really struggled. They've not been able to break through uh, these, you know, heavily defended, dense um, defenses that that Russia has had a lot of time to to uh, to build. And people are tired. There's a real feeling of of exhaustion. This has been going on for, you know, a year and a half at this scale, and for more than nine years now uh, in in the southeast. And and people are exhausted, and you know they're worried that the rest of the world is going to also get tired and become less interested in helping, and that there will be a big election in the United States that could mean. Uh, or well, could it could impact Western support for Ukraine? And so, you know, there's there's great concern that without significant success on the battlefield in the next weeks or months, that people will see Ukraine's fight as essentially, you know, culminating. Like that, that it's they've done all they can. Now it's time to sit down and negotiate. And nobody here wants to negotiate. When they've lost their homes, uh, entire cities, towns, when they've lost loved ones, you know, I think a, a recent poll said uh, there were 70, 78% of Ukrainians knew someone close to them who, who had been killed or, 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 or wounded, had, had essentially been a casualty in this war. And that's an extraordinary amount of people when you have a country of 40 million people. And they don't want... They don't want a solution that sees nearly 20% of their country occupied longer, long term. They don't want to be seen as capitulating. You know, they want, and they believe that, well, they, they want a, a victory. And they believe that their, their close allies can help them achieve that. But that for some reason, they're worried about what a defeated Russia could do. And, and, and so, you know, this is to say that, uh, it's, it's a really intense and difficult moment that, that, uh, Ukraine is in right now. Yeah. And I think the only way to, to, to escape that, uh, is for them to have success and to have success. They need a lot more support. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they've lost a lot of good units and soldiers, you know, they've got some reinforcements, but these are a, a lot of a lot of fighters who are, you know, they're really they're, they're teachers and taxi drivers and IT workers and you know people who understand that this is an existential fight, so that they 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 need to step up and and defend their country. But they're not trained soldiers, you know. Yeah. Um, and, well, and what, so it's, overall, it's just, it's a it's this feeling of ex- of exhaustion, but knowing that yeah. if they stop fighting, then that might be it, you know. Well, two two things actually come to mind. The first is that's so interesting what you say about um, the fear of of waning attention um, by the West, and I think we're at a I don't know if we're I mean every moment's a strange moment, but I feel like I've been hearing more more ideas that have been maybe more fringe ideas here in the U.S. about um, Russia. So, like for example, I went into the DMV the other day. I'm here outside Washington D.C. 
And there was a guy camped out in front of the DMV with like all these posters about, you know, praising Putin and how like, you know, Russia is, is like the real victim here. And this is a war, this is NATO versus Russia and, and that kind of thing. And I feel like I've been hearing a lot more of that, but I, I don't want to say a lot more of that. I have been hearing more of that lately. So that's, that's interesting that, you know, you bring that up as a fear that, that the Ukrainians have. Well, actually, what, what are your thoughts on that before I ask you that? My, my next question. I think, yeah, I, I, I have been noticing that myself, that there is this discussion in the United States that seems to center around a desire for peace and negotiations to happen. But I think that, you know, while, while that sounds all fine and uh, fine and great, I think what is missing is the understanding that a negotiated peace right now means a broken Ukraine uh, with an uncertain future. And I say uncertain, meaning will it ever become whole again? How long would the front lines remain frozen? Would Russia occupy these territories? What would it take uh, in the future to fight back or negotiate back the rest of Ukrainian territory? And I, I think you know some of some of this seems to stem from domestic frustration and also be a part of this polarization that we see in the United States that's become I think I think very political. Um, there are some some more radical elements of one side of the political spectrum that uh, seems to be more sympathetic to the Russian side because they might view the reason for this war being not Russian aggression and Russia's clear desire to destroy Ukraine and its people, but the misplaced idea, in my opinion, that um, it was the West and NATO encroaching further toward Russia that fueled, um, that fueled the conflict and forced Russia to respond. Um, you know, I... I think I'm in a good place being here for the last 13 years to say that, you know, the latter is not the case, that, you know, Putin and, 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 and his Russia has wanted to do this for a long time. Um, they found what they believe to be an opportune moment to do this back in 2014, being invading the country, and then bided their time for a while when they saw that the West wasn't really uh, willing to respond in a, in a strong way before, before uh, uh, invading anew in, 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 in 2022. Well, what do you think is, you know, you're obviously on the ground in Ukraine. What do you think is something that, that people outside of Ukraine don't understand about the war? Hmm. I think there's a lot that, that people don't understand. I mean, it's, it's all very, very complex. Like in some ways, well, let me back up. It's, this is a very complex place, Eastern Europe, Ukraine in particular. I think in a way, this war could could almost be viewed in a much more simplistic way than wars past. I really do feel like more than any war I can remember in my lifetime, and I won't tell you how old I am, but I'm in my 30s, that, you know, there is there is very much an idea here of who is good and who is bad, right? Good and evil. The Ukrainians did not provoke Russia. 
They posed no threat to Russia. Russia invaded anyway, using you know bogus justifications for doing so. And the things that they've done are horrific. You just need to look at Mariupol, Bucha, Bakhmut to know that it's it's monstrous stuff. I mean, war crime after war crime, you name it, they've done it. The Ukrainians are fighting for their lives here. That's why I say this is very much, you know, in, in, a, in a simplified way, you know, I think this is a, a fight, very much a fight against good and evil. But then if you break it down, there are all sorts of complexities. I don't know if we have enough time to get in, in them, but I think, I think what people don't understand to the extent that is, it's, it's clear to people here and let's say some of the other former Soviet uh, satellites that are now and have been independent countries since the collapse. So I'm thinking of like the Baltics and Poland and, you know, the Czech Republic and, and um, a lot of Central and Eastern Europe. If, if Putin and Russia is not stopped now, like they weren't stopped in 2008, they weren't stopped in 2014, there is a very, very good chance this war will spill over further in Europe and cause greater instability, more death, you know, and I think, I think this is now the time where, you know, there has to be um, enough support to help Ukraine win, not, not only to settle the war, you know, find a negotiation to stop uh, or a solution to, to end the fighting, but actually you know what needs to be understood is that ukraine needs to win and and a lot of people i think are looking for a way to just to just end what's what's happening right now not to find a, a lasting solution that that keeps ukraine a sovereign country um more or less whole hopefully on the more side um you know and defeats russia in a way that doesn't allow it to continue this type of aggressive behavior in the future. Yeah, well, just thinking about your experiences, obviously you, you spent in 2010 to 2014, you were in Bakhmut. Thinking about your experiences in Bakhmut in Ukraine before the invasion, I wonder if you could just, you know, in, in the uh, last few minutes of our interview, talk a little bit about Bakhmut. And obviously it's known around the world now is an extremely like fierce battle and the destruction was i think unparalleled maybe in ukraine but maybe not um but terrible destruction but could you just maybe compare and contrast like how it was before and then when you returned which you did do in december of uh last year what did you see maybe i'll take it in reverse and say you know what everybody has seen in recent months is this hellscape where there's no life, there's no color, it's shells of buildings, rubble, you know, or, or entire city reduced to rubble and dust, which is not the city that I remember, is not the city that I lived in, or 70,000 more people. You know, Bakhmut back in 2010, 11, 12, and even up until the full-scale invasion was a beautiful little city that felt a lot like a city in middle America or say, you know, a suburb of, of 
Portland, Oregon, where I grew up, you know, people, people, you know, sent their children to school. They, they, um, you know, they had families that they, they would spend the weekends at the movie theater or the cinema or this beautiful house of culture where they would show, um, you know, various, um, operas, uh, the the embankment on the river was lined with roses, and there was always somebody out there, you know, posing for a photograph to to put, post on on social media. It was a place known not for war, but instead for sparkling wine. There is uh, an old famous winery that was um, actually created by Joseph Stalin in the fifties, and it's produced. Uh, sparkling wine, they call it champagne. It was sparkling wine, but done in a similar manner as French champagne. Uh, and it was, and it was, you know, sent, shipped all over the Soviet Union. And, and then later, you know, still uh, all over Ukraine and Eastern Europe. And I had gone there several times and done tours and, and made, you know, friends with the people who, who worked at the winery. And they would call me every once in a while and say, we have some foreigners in town. And they want to go to the winery and we don't speak English. Can you come and help, you know, guide the tour and translate? And I'd say, yeah, sure. It was also a place known uh, for salt, mining salt. They had these huge, huge salt mines that went for 20 or 30 miles underground, but also had this cavernous room where every October, Ukraine's elite would gather in this mining elevator with no, with no, walls on it and they'd go down 20 at a time and they would watch the national philharmonic uh, orchestra play and uh, it was like the you know one of the events of the year in eastern ukraine and so it was this it was this place that was you know off the beaten path but it was a beautiful city of its own it was the former regional capital of the donetsk region before the city of donetsk was was the capital and unlike a lot of the rest of the region which is you know, a coal dusted step because there are a lot of coal mines out there. This was a place that was actually relatively clean and, and people took great pride in their city. Uh, and, and it was just a lovely, a lovely place. You know, it wasn't a major metropolis, but it had its own charm about it. And I, I fell deeply in love with it. And I made some very close friends who I saw grow up and raise families and do some really great things before, you know, they were forced to flee or join the military. And unfortunately, um, the, the apartments that I lived in and the schools that I worked at and the, the library that I volunteered at are all gone. Well, Chris, this has been an excellent interview. Sorry Thank to so end on that sort of time. bummer note or you know, that more poignant <laughs> note, but no, know. I, which I mean, that's why I saved it to the end because, but you know, there's like a real, and one of the things about your book is that's so valuable about it. I think are those experiences that you've had with your own eyes on the ground. And, um, it's just a very, I think it's a very, it's a value. It's a valuable viewpoint. The more, I feel like the more that, that this war is in all wars, maybe that this war is, is, is made more personal, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, uh, the better outcomes, you know, will happen. So, and that's, and that's what I wanted to do with the book. You know, I want people, people know Ukraine from the last, from the reporting of the last year, which is great, but it's all about war. And a lot of it is really awful 
awful stuff. And in the book, I mean, 70% of the book is all written before the full-scale invasion. And, and the point being that I think it's important to get to know the place so you know what you've lost. Then, then and only then do you really understand the importance of the war, what has, what, what has been lost, why it's important to support Ukraine, to help restore what's been lost, right? Um, and it's just a fascinating, beautiful, funny, wild place as well. And, and so, you know, the book is packed with all sorts of, uh, you know, various experiences and me bumbling along before I ever, you know, grasp this, you know, this place. And, and then, of course, all of these, you know, incredible stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary uh, things that we've, you know, we've come to, to know um, in, the, in the past year, for example. So thank you for having yeah. me. It's been, it's been fun to chat. Yeah, absolutely. If people want to stay in touch with, uh, with your work, um, are you, how can they stay in touch with what you're, you're writing? Are you on social media? Yeah, I, my email, I think my email is out there. You know, um, I'm a working journalist with the Financial Times. A lot of my contact information is out there. I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter for now. Threads is looking kind of good. Instagram I, I use and I post a lot of photos from my reporting out in Eastern Ukraine if you like um, images rather than words and uh, uh, yeah you know yeah I'm I'm around usually usually people right. are, are smart enough to figure out how to get in touch <laughs> wonderful well uh, Christopher Miller the war came to us life and death in Ukraine uh, go buy a copy go check it out from your library um, what an incredible personal story and Chris thank you so much for your time thank you AJ